Let's turn back, if uh, you will, to Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. And as you do that, why don't I pray and ask God to help us to understand his word together. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you have given for our learning. Thank you that we can hold it in our hands and read it in our own language. And we pray very much that you'd help us this evening by your spirit to rightly understand this passage before us and to truly live in the light of it. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Well, love can be expressed in any number of ways, can't it? Romantic love can be expressed with flowers or chocolates, so my wife keeps telling me. (laughs) Parental love can be expressed in provision, support, nurture or discipline. Love between friends can be expressed in time spent together, acts of kindness, words of encouragement. Paul loved the the Christians in Galatia. He refers to them as his brothers in verses 12 and 28 and 30. He calls them his dear children in verse 19. But the tone here is one of tough love. It's loving rebuke. He wishes he could change his tone. He says that in verse 20. But sometimes the most loving thing to do for someone is to say the hard things, especially when they are in the kind of danger that the Galatian Christians have got themselves into. No doubt you will know very well by now the danger that they are in. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning away to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Yikes! They're thinking of turning to a different message. A message which isn't good news at all. Well, notice, if you were with me, two things from these verses. The first is this. Don't slip back into the misery and slavery of salvation by works. Don't slip back into the misery and slavery of salvation by works. That's verses 8 to 20. It seems that a group of Judaizers have infiltrated the churches of Galatia and are saying that the Christians there need to observe various Jewish customs and laws if they are to be truly God-saved people. Have a look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Paul writes there, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Well, it seems they do. They're falling for it. Have a look at verse 10. Paul writes there, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. At one time, they were in slavery. Slavery to man-made religion and sin, and they didn't know God. But they got saved by turning in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And suddenly they were released from slavery 
and set free, free to live as men and women were created to live, as children of the living God. But now they are turning back to that man-made religion of old, to to a religion of works. And Paul has spotted a telltale sign. Have a look at verse 15. It says there, What has happened to all your joy? What's happened to your joy? You've become miserable. Losing your joy and being miserable is the inevitable result of turning from the gospel of grace to a religion of works. It's inevitable because we can't even keep our own standards, can we? Let alone God's. And you're always left feeling miserable at your woeful efforts when you try. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to go back to that? That's what Paul wants to know in verse 9. It's as if he's saying there, why on earth would you return to those miserable principles that imagine that we can earn God's favour somehow? Why on earth, having been set free from all of that, would you go back to a form of slavery? In this case, Judaism. It's crazy. It's like a prisoner who has been set free going back to jail of his own accord and asking to be locked up again. Or a student who has just graduated from university wanting to return to primary school. Or a homeless person who has been taken in by a family and has been well fed wanting to return to the street. It's ludicrous. And Paul wants to help these Galatian Christians to see just how ludicrous it is. Christianity, as David taught last week, is about sonship, not slavery. We've seen it already in verse 10, and it's there again in verse 21, where Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under law, they want to be. Their religion, it seems, is no longer to do with a relationship with the living God, it's degenerated into formal, outward, religious ritual. Instead of growing in freedom, they are becoming enslaved in wretched religious rubbish. Their spirituality is to do with a building, a special building perhaps, or a law, or a ritual, or a ceremony, rather than a relationship with God. They're basically saying, I prefer slavery to sonship. No wonder Paul spoke so strongly to them in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's remind ourselves of what he says there. He says to them, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? This is tough love. He's saying hard things because the eternal welfare of these Galatian Christians is at stake. Have a look at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes there, Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because, and he quotes the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. And it is that argument between justification by law or justification by faith that Paul picks up on in chapter 4. Of course, Paul doesn't want to say that the law is bad. So at the end of chapter 3, you may remember, 
that Paul tells us that the purpose of the law was to restrain sinfulness and lead people to Christ. But its function was never to save or to justify. And that is why Paul takes such a hard line with these Galatians. It's because he loves them and he knows that there is no salvation, no justification in law-keeping or in religious observances. Salvation is only through faith in Christ. So to move from Christ back to Jewish legalism is a disaster. It's a disaster like running off a cliff because the result is certain death and worse than that, certain eternal spiritual death. He's got to spell it out really clearly for them because as you can see in verse 17, those false teachers who have infiltrated the churches of Galatia are zealous to win the Galatians over. They look and sound very nice, a bit like the Jehovah's Witnesses perhaps, but their intentions are wrong. Their intention is to draw those Christians into their heretical little group. You can see their wrong motive at the end of verse 17. Paul writes there, what they want is to alienate you from us, that's the apostles, so that you may be zealous for them. They're basically building a kingdom for themselves. Well, Paul is in a right state. He's like a parent who can see his kids going off the rails, going towards a life of misery. And he is desperate for them. Look at verse 19 19 there. He says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I think that's saying that before they were born again, Paul was desperate for them, that the penny would drop and that they would come to Christ and that Jesus would be the centre of their lives. And now he feels like that all over again for them because it it seems that the law has been formed in them. The law is becoming the centre of their lives. So he longs that the penny will drop again about Jesus so that he can change his tone with them, as he says in verse 20. Now, before we look at what is actually a knockdown argument in verses 21 to 31, we should take note of the danger of religion in our own lives. You see, instinctively, we all want to be under the law too, just like they did. We would dearly love to know what we can do to find favour with God. If only we could, be, we could have favour with God, be friends with God, by being in church every Sunday. Well, we'd be okay, wouldn't we? Or if only it was to do with giving a certain amount of our money, we'd be okay. Or if only it was to do with reading our Bibles or praying every day, we'd be okay, perhaps. People whose religion is legalistic, including professing Christians, who think that their relationship with God depends on adherence to regulations or ceremonies and traditions, need to know that they are in slavery to those regulations and ceremonies and traditions and rituals. Now we may be able to tell whether we are in danger by how we would answer the following question. 
How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? If you answer by saying something like, I mean, Christian friends do often say that to each other, don't they? What do you say when they ask you? If you say, I'm doing okay. My Bible reading is regular. I'm praying every day. I'm serving in this way or that. Then you may be in danger. Or if you answer by saying, not too good really. I haven't read my Bible for a week and I can't remember the last time I prayed. Then you too may be in danger. But perhaps not in the way that you think. You see, a truly gospel way of thinking would be to say, I'm doing okay spiritually, thanks, because Jesus died for me, so I know I'm forgiven. And then you could say, I'm really enjoying reading my Bible at the moment, or perhaps please pray that I'll read my Bible because I don't think I'm growing very much, and uh, pray that I'll repent as well because I'm so aware of sin in my life and so on. But all is well with you because Jesus has died for you. Do you see the difference? It may seem subtle to us, but it is a vast difference in eternity. For us, law-keeping could be, in fact, almost certainly is, more subtle than it was for the Galatians. They were being led astray by people who were actually promoting justification by law-keeping. But you and I just sinfully drift into a mentality of being justified by good works and our legalistic religiosity. It's so subtle. Beware. One book I read recently defined it like this. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. You see, it looks and sounds so good, doesn't it? And there lies the danger because it subtly shifts our focus from the Lord Jesus. How do you feel tonight as you sing God's praises in church? Some of you will be feeling really good. You will sing with sincerity and zeal. Could that be because you've had a good week Christianly? read your Bible, said your prayers, spoken to your friends about Jesus, resisted temptation. Others here may be finding it difficult to sing. Perhaps you feel that God disapproves of you as you remember the ways, the terrible ways perhaps, that you've messed up this week. Do you see how possible it is for us to put our confidence in our performance rather than in the gospel of justification by faith alone. Don't slip back into that way of thinking. Keep trusting in Christ and in him alone. Well now let's have a look at uh, verses 21 to 31. I won't be as long now, don't worry. I've been messing around a bit this afternoon with this talk, trying to work out what the second heading should be. Been in a right state, I can tell you. It was almost, make sure you have the right mother, which sounds ridiculous but I hope, you'll, uh, hope that will become clearer in a moment, why it might have been that. It isn't that, don't worry. In the end, I settled for this. Remember, God's children are born supernaturally according to his promise.
Remember, God's children are born supernaturally according to his promise. Now, I'm not sure if that helps either. So let's not worry about the heading too much. Let's just have a look at the text. In these verses, Paul spells out very clearly, using the Old Testament, why it is so much better to be a child justified by faith, saved by a divine miracle according to God's promise, rather than to carry on seeking his favour enslaved to a law or a works mentality which will never work. Have a look at verses 22 to the first part of 24. Paul says there, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. Now in those verses, Paul is referring to Genesis chapters 16 to 21 and the birth of Abraham's two sons. God promised Abraham, didn't he, that he would be the father of a great nation. But he was old, as was his wife Sarah. So they thought they'd help God out a bit. That was good of them, wasn't it? Sarah suggested that Abraham sleep with her servant girl, Hagar, so that he might have a son by her. Well, as you know, Ishmael was born. But years later, Abraham had a visit from the Lord, that's Genesis chapter 18, and is told that within a year, his wife, Sarah, who was a very old woman at that stage, in her 90s, would have have a son herself, Isaac. Ka-ching goes the cash till. She'd be able to pick up her old age pension and her child benefit at the same time. (laughs) So there are the two sons of Abraham. One Ishmael, born of a slave woman, Hagar, and the other Isaac, born of a free woman, Sarah. And we're told in verse 24 that these two women represent two covenants. Hagar, the slave woman, stands for the old covenant and her son Ishmael symbolises the religious Jewish people whose focus is on the earthly city of Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 25. But Sarah, the free woman, stands for the new covenant and her son Isaac symbolises the church of the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul is saying it's not enough to claim that Abraham is your father. The crucial thing is who is your mother? Which is why I almost had that awful heading. Have you only been born naturally by human will, as Ishmael was, in which case, like him, you have been born into slavery, that is, slavery to sin and law. Or have you been born supernaturally, as Isaac was, born not according to nature or human will, his parents were far too old for that, but born by the Spirit, 
according to God's promise, in which case, like Isaac, you have been born into freedom. Well, we know, don't we, that we're all born naturally. That's why we're sitting here. But having been born naturally, we are all naturally slaves to sin. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot do what is right. That is why Jesus tells us very plainly that we need to be born again. Maybe you've never been born again. You need to be. We need to be born into freedom. We need to be born supernaturally. We need to be born again according to God's promise, just as Isaac was born according to God's promise. And what is God's promise to us? It is the promise of forgiveness for sin and freedom from bondage to it and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. You remember the words of John 1, 12 and 13, which say, Yet to all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of human descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Those Judaizers, though descended from Abraham, were not God's true children. They looked the part because they were sons of Abraham. But by insisting on law-keeping, they demonstrate that they are sons of Abraham like Ishmael, born only into slavery, born only naturally. And they will not receive God's blessing just as Ishmael didn't. They belong to the Jerusalem which is below, in present-day Israel, verse 25, a little strip of land in the, Middle East, in the Middle East. And they remain in slavery to law and to war as they continue to fight with Muslims over that little bit of land called Israel. Interestingly, Abraham is regarded to be the father of Muslims too, as well as of Jews and Christians. But Muslims trace their line to Abraham not through the free son Isaac, but through the slave son, Ishmael. And of course, as we know, unsurprisingly, Islam is a religion of attempted salvation through law and works, as they try to keep the five pillars of Islam. What a wretched way to be going on. Wonderfully, Christians don't belong to the earthly Jerusalem of verse 25. No, we belong, verse 26, to the Jerusalem that is above the heavenly Jerusalem, where God really dwells. And we're not in slavery to law. We are free people. We are like Isaac, verse 28, born supernaturally, according to God's promise to be free from slavery. And we are true sons of Abraham, justified as he was, by faith, not by works or by law. If you are a Christian... You are the real McCoy. You are true children of the living God, born by the power of the Spirit, according to God's promise. Praise God. You don't need 
any second baptisms of the Spirit or confirmation or law-keeping or anything. Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. It's fantastic being born again supernaturally according to God's promise. Praise God for that wonderful privilege if you have been born again. But notice as we finish that being God's child born supernaturally according to his promise does not mean that life will be a bed of roses. Verse 29 tells us, at that time, that's the time of Isaac and Ishmael, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And then Paul says, it is the same now. It's the same now. Christians can expect persecution from those who do not believe in these truths that we've looked at tonight. Those born only by the flesh will persecute those born by the Spirit. That's how it was between Ishmael and Isaac. And it would be the same for the Galatians, Paul says. And it is the same for us today. Those who look like they're in, persecuting those who are genuinely in. Those who call themselves Christians, but who are into rules and regulation religion, persecuting God's true sons. We must expect persecution not only from the world, by the way, but also from our half-brothers, religious people. Listen to the words of John Stott. He said this, The greatest enemies of the evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, who when they hear it often embrace it, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. They're the greatest enemies. How true. Only this morning on Radio 4's Sunday programme, a Christian layman who sits on General Synod spoke of how he fears that some senior clergy will and do oppose his motion for the July Synod which states that Christians should actively evangelise people of all nations and faiths including Muslims. Well, of course we must. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the one who will set people free from sin and slavery and death. But many clergy would choke on their cornflakes at the thought of offending anyone of another faith. They would rather keep quiet. You see, they evidently take the view that being religious works. You just have to be religious. Do your thing, your rituals, your ceremonies. And many think that the religion that worships self works too. Religions of slavery, all of them. They are sons of Hagar and brothers of Ishmael. We mustn't be unduly worried by that, by the way. God's word tells us to expect it. But we must stand up to it. Look at how strong scripture is about it in verse 30. Paul writes there, Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. I think that means we mustn't take any nonsense. 
We mustn't allow ourselves to be led back to slavery by these people, whoever they may be, because God has set us free. The Ishmaels of this world trust in themselves and they are enslaved because of self-reliance, because self-reliance always leads to slavery. The Isaacs trust only in God through Jesus Christ and enjoy freedom, for it is only through faith in Christ that men and women and children are set free. Will you pray with me now? Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for bringing us to miraculous, supernatural new birth and freedom in Christ. Please keep us trusting him and rejoicing in him. Forgive us for when we have begun to trust in ourselves, in our own religious performance or in our good works. Please renew our minds that we would rejoice daily in Christ and in all that he has won for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing our final hymn now, which is a fantastic hymn to finish on. Before the throne of God above, and you'll see in verse 2, great words which speak of the freedom that we have in Christ. Let's stand to sing, Before the throne of God above. (laughs) 